Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By rallying research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Scarrow is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and it's great having you back with me again this week. I really appreciate you making Next on the Tee a part of your weekly golf content. Tonight, I'm excited that I get to share four more great guests with you that have great stories and insights that you're really going to enjoy. First up tonight is going to be Hall of Fame golf course architect Reese Jones. He is working with our good friend Bill Bergen on a second course up at McLemore, which is called the Outpost. He's got great designs all over the world, so we're going to get into several of those when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Following Reese, I'm going to get a return visit from one of the few instructors who has reached master professional status on both the LPGA and PGA side, and that's Dr. Allison Kurt. Allison has her doctorate in sports psychology, so she can make your golf game better and your mental approach better, and she can help make your life off the course better as well. So we're going to hear about all of those things and get her great insights and help with our mental game when she joins me about 25 minutes from now. Following Allison, I'm going to get a return visit from one of my all-time favorite people on the planet, let alone in the game of golf, and that's Cindy Miller. Cindy's another one of the top instructors in our game. She is fantastic at helping you with the mental side of the game as well, We'll get some playing lessons from her, plus her perspective on what's going on with the LPGA Tour and the LPGA Legends Tour when she joins me a little bit later on in the hour. And then we'll round things out with a return visit from Dave Stockton Jr. Dave has become a wonderful friend over the years. I want to get his perspective on what's going on around the PGA Tour. We'll talk about the Live and PGA Tour proposed merger. We'll talk a little bit about Jay Monahan. We'll look ahead to the Ryder Cup. Plus, when a player starts to go sideways, how can we get him back on track? Learn all of those things when Dave joins me at the top of the next hour. So we're going to have a lot of fun, folks, over the next couple of hours. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the McLemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Bergen, Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 
1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to macklemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me and making his sixth appearance on the show is Hall of Fame course designer Reese Jones. You guys hear me bragging about what a great course the Macklemore is every week. That's one of Reese's co-designs with our good friend Bill Bergen. They're now working on a second course up there called the Outpost, which is scheduled to open in spring of next year. But let me remind you about Reese's background. He's from Montclair, New Jersey. And he comes from undoubtedly the most talented golf design course family ever. His father is legendary golf course designer Robert Trent Jones, and both Reese and his brother, Robert Trent Jones Jr., have done outstanding course designs plus course renovation projects all over the world. Reese graduated from Yale and did his graduate studies at Harvard. In 1974, he founded his own design firm, Reese Jones Incorporated. He has designed or redesigned over 225 golf courses, including remodeling seven U.S. Open sites, eight PGA Championship courses, five Ryder Cup courses, two Walker Cup venues, and one President's Cup site. Locally, he has redesigned Eastlake Golf Club, the site of the Tour Championship, and Bobby Jones' home course. You can also see his work at great courses like Torrey Pines, Cog Hill, Oakland Hills, Pinehurst Number 7, and several others that we're going to be talking about tonight. He's won numerous awards, including the 2013 Donald Ross Award from the American Society of Golf Course Architects. He was inducted into the New Jersey Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame in 2012 and the Northern California Golf Association Hall of Fame in 2015. He was Golf World Magazine's 1995 Golf Architect of the Year and given the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America's Old Tom Morris Award in 2004. And I am deeply honored that I get the privilege of having him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Reese. Thanks for coming back on the show. It's great to be with you again. Reese, I want to start by getting an update on the new course that you're working on with Bill Bergen up there at McLemore. It's called The Outpost. How's construction coming? Well, it's one of the most fantastic pieces of property you'll ever see in the game of golf. I mean, it's just made for golf. Bill and I were there um, going over the project with Scott Beasy and Clyde Hall of Southeastern Golf last week. Um, it's evolving slowly, which all great golf courses really get done in the proper uh, pace of play, pace of instruction. And uh, it's, it's really going to be one of the special golf courses in, in the world. And Reese, on the com site, you're quoted as saying this course could host a major. And McLemore 
really is a breathtaking piece of property. And I know the outpost is going to take that up another level. Do you think once that course matures a little bit, we could see a tournament played there someday? Well, it's major worthy, and it uh, depends on, um, you know, whether or not uh, we can get one of the golf associations to um, come visit. I think once they see it, they'll know that, that it really is major worthy. It's got a big city near Chattanooga. The hotel is going to be spectacular that uh, Dwayne Horton is creating. Um, and so it has all the elements to host a major championship as well as a golf course that really will suit the player's needs and can have the length. You don't have to trick it up. It's going to play pretty much as designed for everybody uh, for a major championship. So, uh, you know, I think it, it, it could. I think Charlie Reimer's been very helpful with us. He's uh, very influential um, with uh, Dwayne Horton and Ivy Whitman. So um, it's he knows what to look at, and, and it's really been a team effort, Bill Berg and myself, and, Steve Wise is my office, as well as Clyde Hall and Scott Beasy and Dwayne himself. And Reese, you are also quoted as saying it's a mountain site with a seaside feeling. What do you mean by that? Well, I designed the Playa Grande course on the coast of uh, the Dominican Falls, North Coast, and uh, that was cliffside over the ocean. This is cliffside over uh, the valley. It's right on the edge of Lookout Mountain. So it's almost like a pebble beach uh, piece of property because we have holes that really go back and forth on the, on the cliff side and uh, it's got a flow to it uh, like Pebble Beach. It's just a natural piece of property. It's got the back nine um, really has such diverse holes. It's, it's good. You're never going to feel like you're the same place anywhere in the, in the property. Once you play the next hole, you can actually, we cleared most of the site because it was one of these sites where you wanted to look out over to the valley off of Lookout Mountain. And you also want to look in interior and in, inward. Uh, to the holes that are coming up. I think when the people play it for the first time, they're just going to be so anticipating every hole that comes up next because every hole has a distinctive topography, different different uh, natural features. The 11th hole is one of the most natural par threes. It's, it's surrounded by rocks. The first hole plays over a little canyon. Uh, the, the 9th and 10th holes are right along the, the, the edge of the cliff. The 18th hole finishes on the edge of the cliff. The 17th hole plays through rock outcrops. Um, I think people are going to travel from all over the world just to play Macklemore and stay at the wonderful hotel that Dwayne Horton's creating. Henry, speaking of Macklemore and, and, and uh, holes over the edge, the 18th hole at the current Macklemore golf course has been named one of the best finishing holes in all of golf. Where does it rank for you? Well, it's right up there in the top. I mean, Bill Bergen and I, uh, who this our third golf course, uh, the sort of, you know, third golf course we're doing together. And, um, you know, we, we just are a great team. Uh, we think alike. Uh, we, we know what, how the average player plays and how the good player plays. Bill himself played on the tour. So he definitely knows how the good player plays, but it's really a golf course designed, uh, for everyone. And I, I think, um, that the, the team effort and Steve Weiser from my office and Clyde Hall, the shaper, I hired him right out of college. So he's worked with me probably on 40 or 50 golf courses. So the communication has been spectacular. And that's why I think um, building it slowly and and properly, uh, we're going to have something for everybody to enjoy for uh, a long, long time. Reese, let's expound a little bit on that. When you're putting a golf course design together, whether it's one of your own designs, a renovation, or you're working with somebody like Bill, 
How do you keep the average player in mind? So when you're constructing that golf course and the layout, for us that are coming up there, whether it's going to be a public course, a private course we're going to join, or it's a resort course that we're coming to for the first time, how do you keep the average player in mind with your designs? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it's uh, because we also we emphasize the ground game as well as the aerial game. Um, the, the greens can be accessed for the most part unless a natural feature is in front of them, like uh, number one or um, number 11. Uh, so most of the holes can be accessed on the ground as well as the air. When we don't have a, a, that ability, uh, we can have a, an alternate approach. You can play away from the trouble to a pocket uh, so you don't have to carry the hazard. Um, so I think we really think of the average golfer but long before we think of the more proficient golfer. Uh, we have back tees because Charlie Reimer is very influential in that. And we call them the Charlie Tees, uh, but they're, they'll be rarely played. At Torrey Pines, they never play the back tees on a regular basis. They only play them in the U.S. Open or in the Farmers Insurance Open. So I think that may be the way. Every once in a while, we'll let uh, some of the good players, if they have a college tournament, et cetera, uh, we'll let them play those back tees. But for the most part, the middle tees are where we're designing the golf course from. Reese, I want to talk about some of your other golf course designs, and I'm headed over to Hilton Head in a couple of weeks, and you've designed several private courses in that area, including one that I've heard so many great things about, and that's Hague Point Club on Defusky Island. It's been a Golf Digest Top 100 course ever since you designed it back in 1989. Talk about how spectacular that golf course is. Well, it was just, uh, I, I built it for international paper, and they, they let me lay out the golf course first and then they put the housing second. Um, they wanted a great golf course, um, in Hilton Head because Hilton Head does have great golf. And so they wanted us to compete. And I think we exceeded their expectations because it was ranked both in the top 100 golf digest and the world list from golf magazine. So, um, it's really resonated and it plays next to the Cowboys. It's kind of plays to the Cowboys. It's kind of plays down to a sandbar on the Cowboys. Town. And the views and the, the trees uh, just make it a very, very enjoyable visual experience as well as a, a, a playable golf course. So uh, it's just one, been one of those golf courses that uh, stood the test of time. And um, every once in a while, we go back and tweak it a little bit. But uh, it's really a very special place. I hear the 17th hole is something to behold. Tell me about that hole. Well, uh, that's a drop shot par three. Uh, to uh, a green on the uh, in the sandbar, uh, right next uh, you cross the wetland uh, to a high spot uh, that that abuts the Calabogie Sound. So visually, it's exciting. Also, it's a it's a do or die shot, uh, and um, when you're trying to save your your score in your round, or you're trying to beat your buddy, or maybe win a little money, uh, it's a it's it's a muscle tightening shot. And then 18 is a a par five that comes uphill that's very variable smallest green on the golf course elevated green but uh there's a chance of hitting that green too so um you the what the beauty of of all these golf courses that i've designed like Hague point or maximore is that uh they're suitable for every caliber player you have holes that you're, you can make up ground you can make birdies you have holes that really are, are swing holes and then you have holes where you really have to work hard to make par and i think that's what both maximore and Hague point are all about a little further north and west up in Utah, Victory Ranch looks like an amazing golf course with incredible views. 
What was it like when you went up there for the first time and saw that property? Well, we we looked at lots of, there's a very large property. And with the developer, we, we looked at all kinds of opportunities. There was uh, the riverside land. Uh, and then we had this rugged land that uh, really overlooked uh, the, the major reservoir in the area. And um, we decided on, on going with more rugged land um, that uh, makes, it's just, uh, it's just a mountain golf course. I mean, it's just um, got phenomenal views of the, of the mountain. It's got phenomenal views of the reservoir. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the site itself, even if you don't look outward, uh, it's very spectacular to be on and look at. And then the flow of the holes, uh, the, the developer really gave us the best land, uh, to have golf holes that really work and suit the, the shot you required to hit. And, uh, it's a very fair golf course. Uh, but it's just, it's an experience. I mean, and I think that's what Bill Bergen and I, uh, are doing at Macklemore also. We're just building a golf course as well as a golf experience. And if you have a great site like Victory Ranch or Macklemore, uh, it's a lot easier to do that. Reese, on the public side, Lake of Isles up in Connecticut is a wonderful course. The North Course has been named by Golf Week as one of the best public golf courses that you can play. It's rated number one in the state of Connecticut. Talk about what people are going to see there. Well, that was the old Boy Scout camp. It goes around a, 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 a huge lake. Um, it was a thousand acres, and they allowed us to choose the best land for the golf because there's no other development other than two golf courses on that property. Uh, and again, uh, it's tree lined. Uh, the vegetation has never been touched. It's, it's really mature. Uh, it has elevation changes. It comes into play with the, uh, the water. And, um, I think it's uh, probably, it, it could host a major event also if, if they ever wanted to, because it's not far from a major population base. And, uh, it's, uh, it's just a golf course that gets ranked highly because, uh, it, it's both playable, but really, uh, very challenging. So you talk about choosing the land. How do you go about choosing what the best parcel of land is going to be? If you've got a, a large area that you have at your disposal. How do you narrow it down and figure out what is going to be the best layout and the best land for the golf course to sit on? Well, we're very fortunate this year to have uh, the technology uh, at our disposal where we really can look at uh, the mapping and it really tells you almost how the land looks almost more than the land itself because in many cases, like Lake of Isles, it was completely wooded. Uh, when we did Cascada in Las Vegas uh, for the Caesars Hotel. It was built actually for the MGM Hotel, but they sold the Caesars. Um, they, I found that land by helicopter and uh, they, we looked all over the valley to find the best land for best golf. And I call that a, a desert dune because all the holes are in valleys between rock outcrops. But because we had the ability to have the mapping, we had the ability to fly over the site and really find the holes. Uh, I think that's the real trick. Nobody really talks about the routing, like at Lake of Isles, it's phenomenal routing. Uh, Macklemore, you really can't find a better routing than that anywhere. Um, and I think people don't emphasize the routing. They really emphasize the length of holes, the green contours, et cetera. And they take the routing for granted. But uh, I think that's uh, a very, very important aspect of it. And I think that's something that we really work very hard at. Is that the same sort of process you guys went through at the outpost? Because that was nothing but woods and rocks and, and things of that nature 
How'd you figure out how to lay the, lay the golf course on that piece of property? Well, we knew the topo. We knew how the holes would flow. We didn't actually know where all the rock was uh, until we cleared it. Uh, that's how we found the, 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 the 11th hole. When I did Ocean Forest, we didn't know where all the dunes were, but we had to avoid the wetlands that were caused by the, the dunes. So we put all the holes in the right place, but we found them because the topo was so accurate. Uh, and I think that's the case with the outpost. Uh, the mapping that Dwayne Horton gave us was phenomenal. So uh, when we actually cleared it, we, we were actually fabric, flabbergasted when we found the 11th hole. I mean, you'll, when you finally play it, you're going to you know, know what I'm talking about. But it, it's a one-of-a-kind hole. Locally here in Atlanta, Echelon Golf Club has been named a top 20 course in the state of Georgia. The practice facility is one of the best in the entire country. Talk about all the things that that course has to offer. Well, again, uh, rugged piece of property. So if you have a rugged piece of property uh, that you can actually work the holes on, like we did Sacanesset on the Cape, uh, and it really is, it makes the golf experience uh, really dramatic, challenging. Every hole is distinctive. Every hole has a different uh, twist. And I think that's what Echelon is all about because it was a rugged piece of property that our routing fit on it, uh, but it re- every hole has a change in personality, and I think that's why it's so popular. We built it initially uh, hoping it would be the home course for Georgia Tech, but I think eventually it was just too far away from the school, uh, so now it's uh, a high-end public facility that is very, very much in demand. You talk about courses having personality, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about your designs. They're not cookie-cutter golf courses talk about making sure that your courses do have a personality of their own the whole the holes have a personality of their own so that it's not just something that someone could pick up and say ah, I've, I've played a course just like this last week yeah that that's a good question and i think my era golf course architects pete Dye and bob cup and jack nicholas and tom fazio we really all tried to do something different uh on every site and we didn't want anybody to say oh i recognize it in fact if they asked who the architect was, I think that's a major compliment because we didn't want the bunker style to be the same on every golf course. We didn't want the green style to be the same. Um, if you have a shorter uh, golf course, a shorter site, you might build smaller greens like we did at Golden Horseshoe in Williamsburg. Um, and I think that uh, if you, I just hope that when my career is over, uh, that people won't necessarily be able to uh, recognize the design as my design. Uh, they'll have to ask and then say, oh, I didn't didn't recognize that. So I think that's what all of us in our area really wanted. Reese, your course down in Savannah, Southbridge Golf Club, can now boast having the champion golfer of the year, Brian Harmon, as a member. He grew up there. He won the club championship there before he was even old enough to drive. He tells the story about how the club champion gets a preferred parking spot, but he wasn't old enough to drive when he won, so they built him a bike rack, which I think is hilarious. But talk about the golf course that Brian grew up on. Well, it's right on Highway 95. And uh, when it was first opened, it's a public golf course within a real estate development. And I built it for several friends of mine, uh, Jim Haslam and Brooke Simmons. And um, it's a very, very popular golf course. And I've been a Brian Harmon fan uh, ever since he was a kid because I knew he was quite a player coming out of that golf course, just like Kevin Kisner came out of my woodside. Uh, plantation golf course so it's kind of fun watching those two guys uh, grow up and become very successful on the tour having grown up on one of my golf courses and um, 
it, it's always been a very successful and popular public golf course because it's so accessible, it's so close to the city of Savannah. In fact, Brian was asked uh, what course, if he had one last course to play, what course he would play. He said uh, Southbridge because that's where I grew up and that's where I have my roots and that I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Southbridge. So I think that community has to be very, very proud of that. When you're putting in a private course or a semi-private course, particularly if it's a redesigned project that you're brought in on, did the members get any input about what you're what you're trying to build or what you see? I mean, they're going to be left with what that golf course is. Is there any level of interaction and feedback from what the membership might want to see? I think more so today, yes. I think the Internet has made uh, a lot of the members, the committee members, and the executive committee people are more wary of, of design. Um, I think um, they, they really do want it to be playable and enjoyable and something that they can play every day and really never get tired of it. And I think um, we do a lot of presentations. We're doing Addison Reserve down in uh, Delray right now. We just did Broken Sound in, in, uh, in Boca Raton over. We did both the Breakers courses, um, Ballon Isles up in uh, West Palm Beach. So and, and all those projects, not not the breakers, we worked with the committee there and really with Mark Reed, just one person. But when you work with these communities, um, you work with the committees to make presentations. Um, we're about to start Broken Woods and Boca and then Deering Bay and near Miami. And in all those cases, we work with the executive committee and we make presentations and really allay the fears that it's going to be too hard. I think that's what their major concern is. But they also don't want us to dumb it down. So uh, we have to decide what's what's best for them. And ultimately, the great pleasure that uh, Greg Muirhead, Bryce Swanson, and Steve Weiser and I get is um, when we get such positive feedback that it's enjoyable to be played by every caliber player and even the shorter hitters. Reese, when I think about you and what you do, I, I, I kind of envision you as kind of an artist carving a golf course out of a land canvas. Are you ever a frustrated artist? When you look back at a hole or a course you've designed and think, mm, well, I'd sure like to get that one over. Well, yeah, we go back to our courses and um, make changes. In fact, right now we're doing this at the Waldorf Astoria, which is inside the gates of Disney World, where uh, they added to the hotel, which uh, forced us to rethink 17, 18. We made 18 a par four and 17 a par five. Unfortunately, had a par five green to begin with. And now we're uh, redoing the bunkers and uh, adding some of the greens open some of the entrances uh, because as it's played by the, the public and by the hotel guests, uh, the pro uh, learns and, and the, the staff learns what people really think are, are you know, difficult or too easy. And so uh, we, we go back to a lot of our golf courses like we, we did at the Holly, which we've been working on. We just um, rebunkered the entire golf course. It just reopened this year uh, it, just to get it ready for, of the KPMG tournament, but it's also to make it better for the members and more playable and make the bunkers more accessible and, and easier to hit out of and really more uh, challenging and also make the holes a little bit uh, more thought-provoking. So we, we do go back to our golf courses quite often and, and really tweak them. Reese, we talked earlier about running into a lot of rock up at McLemore and, and the outpost. Have you ever run into some unforeseen challenges during the process of building a golf course, something you didn't expect, or is the technology that good now that you you don't have to worry about that sort of thing? 
Well, yeah, I think the rock is the issue. You don't know. Lake of Isles, we really had to uh, just, we, had, we never knew when we could hit rock and when we hit soil, so we just had to go as we went. We're doing the same thing at Maximore. That's why it's turning out to be such a phenomenal golf course because we're just we're designing it in the field and as as the lay of the land allows us. In fact, um, one of the par fives will have a little bit of a blind second shot, which is old school and classic uh, because of the rock outcrop. There's nothing we could do about that, but it's going to be one of the best holes on the golf course. So um, I think uh that sometimes uh like at ocean forest we didn't know the wetlands were where they were but it worked out perfectly uh so that we could really filter the holes between them but sometimes you get a surprise mainly when you have wooded sites and you can't really walk the site thoroughly before you start on the flip side of that coin have, have you ever been going down a a design path and you you put it all in and you stand back and you look at it and go man that's so much better than even i anticipated it would be well, <laughs> yeah, when I did, to some degree, uh, that's happening a lot. Because, um, you know, you make these presentations like Coral Ridge was our family club in Fort Lauderdale. It was my father's design, and it was his course. And then the family sold it 15 years ago, and uh, we rebuilt it during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, the, the comments from the members was that you undersold this project. I mean, you, you didn't tell us how great it was going to be. And now it's one of the best courses in Florida, if not whole Southeast. And they host the U.S. Open qualifier on it. And, uh, but again, I really wanted to do what my father wanted and I wanted to make the changes that he would have liked to have made and bring it into the 21st century. So I had a good model. The same thing with both the Breakers golf courses. I mean, we transformed Breakers golf. If, if they weren't a seaside resort, they'd be selling themselves as a, as a golf resort because they're, the golf courses are that that enjoyable to play. So uh, I think to some degree, uh, even they were surprised at how, uh, how many people love the, the redesign. Reese, just a couple more before I let you go and update us on the project you're working on now. Well, we're really kind of all over the place. We're about to open the monster golf course uh, in uh, the Catskills. It was where the old uh, Concord hotel was. That's a casino. Now um, we're, we're working on uh, a course in Osama in Japan to host uh, another uh, championship event. Uh, our, uh, we get a lot of championship golf courses in Japan because like this year at Ibaraki, they're having the Japan Open. And then we also uh, designed Gotemba, which hosts the Taiheo Masters. Uh, we're working in one uh, in a new resort course in um, near Sao Paulo, Brazil, and doing a lot of remodeling projects in Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just, uh, trying to just keep busy on the remodeling, but then a lot of new stuff, uh, is popping up right now. So, uh, there's about three new projects. I can't really tell you where they are yet, but they're all about to start. Uh, so new golf courses are starting to, to come into being again, not just the remodel, but, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's been kind of fun, uh, working this period of time because it's been a lot of rethinking and a lot of new thinking so it's it's a very good time in golf so reese how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're out there doing whether they're following you online or it's on social media well i'm not, i'm not online uh so i, I guess i'm a, a dinosaur in that respect but uh, uh, i'm not on social media either because i i really don't have time to answer all that stuff um <laughs> but uh I think they, 
they can get a lot from the different uh, websites and all my clients have really good websites. Uh, so I, I, I think they get, it, I, it's a little bit harder. You're absolutely right now for the everyday person uh, to find some of these places because you don't have the, a lot of the golf magazines and they're not, they don't really talk about the projects coming in uh, to being as much as they do about the projects that have already opened. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good question, but, uh, I think, uh, the word's going to get out about a lot of the golf courses, uh, that are being built today. Well, Reese, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show again this week. It's always a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. I hope we get the privilege of hearing more of your stories and getting up to date with all the great projects you're working on again very soon. Well, I appreciate that. And I look forward to being back again. I appreciate that. Take care, Reese. All the best, Junior family. We'll catch up again soon. Great. Thanks a lot. See you, Reese. Okay. That is the great Reese Jones, folks. And he has got so many wonderful golf courses all over the world, like I say in his intro. And some of the ones that we talked about tonight, I tell you, um, I couldn't be more impressed with the work that he's done. I've had the privilege of being up at Macklemore, as you guys know, uh, for the last several years. And I'm very much Looking forward to getting out to see the outpost because as he said, and I've heard several other players or other people involved in this project telling me how spectacular it is. And I don't doubt for a second. It's all of that and more. Look, when, when you're, when you're the guy that has worked on courses like Torrey Pines and Cog Hill and Oakland Hills and Pinehurst, and I could go on and on and on again, well over 225 projects that Reese has been involved with. And there's a reason why he's in a couple of hall of fame. So when you, Think about the work that he has done and the work that he continues to do. And like I say, I'm going to be over in Hilton Head here in a couple of weeks. And Hague Point is something that I have heard many people that have been over there and a few that it is a private golf course. But I know a few guys that have had the privilege of going out there and playing it and how they brag about how fantastic that golf course is. That is something to behold as well. So, look, he is out there doing work on U.S. Open sites, PGA sites, KPMG sites. Ryder Cup venues, Walker Cup venues. Again, there's a reason why people continue to knock on his door all the time, and he is as busy as he is because he is one of the all-time great. And like I say, we're very privileged to get some time with him tonight, and I'm already looking forward to the next time that we get to have a little bit more. Okay, coming up next is going to be one of the few teachers that has achieved master professional status on both the LPGA and PGA sides of the teaching spectrum, and that is Dr. Allison Kurt. Before I get to Allison, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe, and I need all the help I can get, and the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial 
to Arco's caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick-dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Now back in Next on the T with me is Jim Gallagher, Jr., Jim has become a wonderful friend of the show over the last few years. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is just down the road from my hometown of Pittsburgh. He grew up in Indiana and played his college golf at the University of Tennessee, where he is the most decorated player in UT men's golf history. He led it all four years from 1980 to 1983. He was named the Volunteers Rookie of the Year in 1980, and he helped them win their first SEC championship that season. He tied for fifth in the individual play. 1981, he won the Eastern Kentucky Invitational, and he was named All-American in 1982 and All-SEC in 80 and 82. In that 82 season, he won the Indiana Amateur and was named Team MVP. 1983 was a huge year for Jim. He repeated at that Indiana Amateur and added wins at the Indiana Open and Wildcat Invitational. Plus, he was presented with the team's leadership award. He played in the NCAA tournament in 1980, 81, and 82, and he helped the Vols to 6th, 7th, and 21st place finishes. He turned pro in 1983 and joined the PGA Tour in 84. He won five times out on the PGA Tour. He was a member of the victorious 1993 Ryder Cup and 1994 President's Cup teams. He was inducted into the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame in 1995, and last summer he joined his wife Sissy as a member of the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and I couldn't be more thrilled to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming back on the show. Okay, now next on the tee with me is another one of the great instructors in our game, and that's Dr. Allison Kurt. She has reached heights as an instructor that only a few people ever have. Let me remind you about her background. She played her college golf at Florida State, where she was a two-time academic All-American. She earned degrees in psychology and professional golf management, She's been named the Western Section Teacher of the Year four times. She's one of Golf Magazine's top eight teachers to watch. She's an LPGA Top 50 teacher. In 2015, she was named the LPGA National Teacher of the Year. The following year, in 16, she was the Southern California PGA Teacher of the Year. Golf Digest named her one of the best young teachers in America. She is a PGA and LPGA Master Professional. She is one of only 13 women to earn PGA Master Professional status. If all of that wasn't enough, she was twice named Club Fitter of the Year. She earned her doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis in sports psychology. She was the first woman from Southern California to ever qualify for the PGA Professional Championship on the men's side. She made the cut, and her second round 71 was one of the best rounds of the day to give you some perspective for how tough the conditions were that day. The average score in the second round, Of the guys who finished in the top 10 that week, the average score was 72.3. 
She Shot 71. And I am honored to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Allison, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, it's good to hear your voice and it's good to chat with you again. It's been a while. I know it has. Catch us up. What's been going on with you? Well, just teaching and super busy during the season. Private practice has been growing, playing lots of golf, uh, publishing some cool research and doing a lot of public speaking gigs. So there's a lot that's been going on in the business of Allison Kurt Golf. So tell me a little bit about that research. I imagine it's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so when I went to get my doctorate degree um, in clinical sports psychology, of course, you have to start looking at your dissertation topics. And um, as a licensed clinical psychotherapist in California, I got trained in a technique called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so I decided for my dissertation to look at golfers and what sort of traumas or negative experiences have happened to them on the golf course and how that might have impacted their confidence and their anxiety levels. And so I focused my dissertation research on how EMDR might help athletes, specifically golfers, overcome some of their past obstacles. And so even though it was a long time coming and after a couple of rejections and rewrites, it finally got accepted into the Journal of EMDR Research uh, two months ago. And so excited to share that with the world and be able to, to show how some psychological modalities can help everyday golfers play their best version of golf. So help me understand, because when I think about some things like the trauma that we all have, some some things that I know that I go through on a golf course, and, and I think a lot of us do, we all have that that one hole, that hole we can never seem to play well on. It's sort of, it's gotten in our head. Well, you know, here we are, I'm on 13. I never parted this hole. We may even hit a good drive, but invariably we walk off with bogey or worse. How do we get that trauma out of our head so we can play better golf and not kind of always fall back to the negative memories we have? Well, if it's truly a trauma, so if it's diagnosable as as a traumatic instance or an adverse life experience, then that person would need to work with someone like myself, sports psychotherapist or a clinician to be able to work on healing those uh, past memories. But if it's just some some bad history on a whole and it's truly not a trauma, but your attention seems to go to all the times that you really stunk it up on that hole, then there are some sports psychology tools that can help an individual overcome that, such as redirecting attention, being more mindful, um, being able to reduce emotional arousal, directing attention to what's important and task-relevant items rather than task-irrelevant items. So there's a plethora of tools within the toolbox that an amateur can work with, um, a, a professional, um, and to be able to overcome some of those strategies that aren't helping them. For example, like you said, here we go again, getting onto 13th hole. This is what always happens. Changing some of that narrative and looking at what could lie ahead, what opportunities there might be on the whole, as opposed to running the tape or the script of here's all the times that I've failed. Yeah, I sort of think of Jordan Spieth at the 12th hole at Augusta National during the Masters when I think of a traumatic experience. I don't know how much more a traumatic experience could be than what we watched him go through a few years ago when he had a five-shot lead and essentially going to that hole and then gave it all up there with two really bad swings. I can't imagine it gets much more traumatic 
than doing that in front of tens of millions of people. Certainly. It's actually one of the videos that I use in some of my speaking engagements as I've compiled a bunch of famous historic uh, traumas that we've all witnessed on TV from some of the best players in the world from the men's tour and the women's tour. And, And don't forget, we've got Tiger Woods during the COVID year when the Masters was played later on in the year. Uh, he scored a 10 on that same hole. And so it definitely is on a different stage and it's going to impact a professional golfer significantly different than it would say your club golfer. But trauma isn't solely specific to professional golfers. I mean, it can happen from a shanked shot that creates a lot of embarrassment. Um, Basically, a, a golf trauma that would occur is an experience that an individual goes through that really arouses their nervous system and their emotional system. And it's so overwhelming for the brain to process that that experience ends up getting stuck. And the brain experiences similar to like PTSD symptoms that when a golfer then gets in a like or similar situation, they start to relive or re-experience the sensations that occurred with the original trauma. So with a lot of the clients that I work with in my private practice, that could be a missed putt for a club championship. That could be a a bladed shot out of the bunker at a USGA event that they qualified for. So it's really personal to the person, um, whether you're on TV watching with millions of people watching you or whether you're at your club championship or whether you're with your family and you hit an embarrassing shot and somebody says something to you. Uh, We all handle and process trauma differently, um, but it's really unique to the individual's experience, whether that continues to interfere with their performance moving forward. For those of us who have experienced something like that on our own level, whether it's in a club championship like you talk about or a member guest or just really out with our buddies and we had an opportunity to to win for the day or, or win the skins or whatever we might be playing for, how do we deal with that? How do we get over it? Well, talking to other people, talking to professionals, that certainly helps because the more that you bottle it in, we start to create distortions and narratives and stories about what actually happened. And sometimes you just need a differing opinion and a differing perspective to say, look, this is something that was really upsetting to you. Um, it, It doesn't prevent you from paying your mortgage. You still have your family. A lot of people love you. It's a really horrible shot but you can overcome it. Let's take a look at all the times that you've hit that shot really great. And so uh, an individual can look at building a confidence resume. So highlighting and becoming resilient to the traumas by focusing on times that they've done really well. So perhaps leading into a tournament, if somebody's beginning to feel anxious or doubtful about a particular type of shot, maybe it's chips off of really tight lies around the green surface then I would encourage them to look at all the times and all the memories of when they have been productive, when they have hit really successful shots. And it creates sort of a mental highlight reel. And then that becomes your resilience for when you start to have doubt or uncertainty about that particular shot. You can then use some self-talk and you can use your own facts to say, you know what, I've hit this shot 35 million times in practice and over the course of my golf career. This is just one shot out of that. I know I can pull it off. And so by changing our language, by building a confidence resume, by focusing on the moment and not taking our attention to the past is a a very good way to start uh, not having the trauma overcome a performance. 
So, Allison, and we talk about this a lot on this show about all the negative self-talk that we do. And to your point a moment ago, one of the things so many of us do when we end our round and we're sitting with our friends at the 19th hole or whatever, we all go back to the bad shot or the bad hole that we had. Instead of focusing on all of the good holes and the good putts we made or the birdies that we made or the great par saves we made, we all go back to, you know what, if I just would have done this on on this hole, you know, I would have I would have made par instead of making bogey or double. We 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 focus on the one negative thing that we did instead of all of the positive things that we did throughout the course of the round. Why are we like that? Well, I don't know why. I can say that the brain has a negativity bias. So when things occur in a human's life that has negative connotation to it, the nervous system is way more activated and will remember it more than if we did something positive. So let's say out of 72 shots that particular day, the one that sticks out the most because it activates my nervous system and my limbic system and my amygdala is the seven foot putt for eagle. Let's say that's the one that I'm really upset about. But 71 other shots didn't bring up that emotional arousal. That's a portion of why the brain holds on to or remembers a particular shot. Now, the example I used was one that was actually kind of positive. I didn't talk about a triple bogey or scoring a 10. I talked about a shot that was important to me, seven footer for eagle that I missed. So with that negativity bias, we tend to remember things that elevate and activate the nervous system more. So what I think is harmful is when amateurs then go back in at lunch and they start rehashing the day, they then put all of their attention and energy onto the times that they didn't do well. And that certainly isn't going to boost your confidence or make you feel good about your game. And let's say that's 10% of the entire day. Why not focus on 90% of what you did well? And if you think about human behavior for any parents that are listening or anyone who owns a pet, if you only told that child or that pet, don't do this, don't do this, you're doing it all wrong. What kind of human being or what kind of animal are you going to raise? You know, it's basic human behavior. So you want to give more positive feedback. You want to give more specific feedback. Here's the things that we can do better. And here's the things that we did really well today. And none of that includes language such as, let's go ahead and rehash all the times that we screwed it up today on the golf course, because that doesn't help anybody. Allison, your teaching philosophy is very student-centered. How do you narrow down what each of your student needs in order to help them reach their goals? It starts with the interview process. And so even students that I've worked with for years, when I see them on the lesson tee, the first anywhere from five to 15 minutes is debriefing, asking questions and listening. And once I hear the answers from the questions that I pose, it helps me narrow down what the improvement plan or the strategy needs to be for that day. And rather than having a student fit into a particular model that I might have a preference for, which I do know that a lot of teachers do, I tend to prefer letting the student in a way dictate where we need to go based on their body, their height, their education, their limitations in their physicality, the types of clubs that they have, how much practice they're willing to put in, what tournaments they've got around the corner. So I tend to focus a lot of my improvement strategies and improvement plans um, based on the answers that I receive from the questions that I ask my student that's in front of me. Allison, like I mentioned in your intro, you're one of only 13 women who have reached master professional status. Talk about what it means to reach that level. 
Oh gosh, that's such a long time ago, but it, it means that I have achieved the highest level of education within the PGA of America. And in 2018, I became a dual LPGA master professional. And there's only two women that have done that in the course of history and only one myself that has done it in specifically teaching and coaching. And that's sort of the same thing within the LPGA is reaching the highest level of education. So it's very, I'm very proud of it. Um, It's very near and dear to my heart because it's a small select group. And it just shows how passionate I am about being uh, the best coach I, I can because I'm so intrigued by continuing education and then testing myself to make sure that I'm fully equipped to help every student that comes in front of me. So I truly believe that being a master professional in both organizations allows me to teach the best lessons possible because I've done the work to put in uh, to understand education and what's current trends going on, how to teach different types of students. And I continue to educate and, uh, and learn so that I can always grow to help my students be their best. Allison, I want to get a couple of playing lessons from you tonight, and I'm going to be a little bit selfish on this because I need some help with my game. And I want to start with what you call difficulty getting around the corner because, like I say, I've been struggling in this area of my game. Talk about what that means and how I can fix it. So this really refers to basically rotating past impact. And so if you think of the body moving in a circle, so it rotates in the backswing, and then it rotates into a forward swing. And so a lot of players will have difficulty in that that slang getting around the corner is once you get back into impact for a right-hander golfer, you would continue to rotate your body more left. Sometimes it may be a physical component like um, tight hip flexors or inadequate glute strength to be able to rotate the pelvis around. And then other times it's just a lack of neuromuscular development. So having the connections and the motor patterns established where you understand how to rotate your body through impact. One of the ways that I like to help my students through that is uh, getting their glutes against a wall so that they can kind of feel their right glute and their left glute against the wall. And then rotating into the backswing, sometimes just crossing your arms over your chest is helpful rather than holding a club. And when you complete the backswing, your trail glute will feel like it's digging into the wall. So we know that we've achieved a pretty good amount of rotation. And then as we start the downswing, we start unwinding our body, unwinding our pelvis. You'll then feel both glutes dig into the wall. And then as you essentially get around the corner, you would continue rotating and then your left glute starts digging into the wall. And so that can train you from a very slow motion pattern on how to rotate the pelvis and how to rotate the torso. But again, if you don't have the glute strength or the mobility or the flexibility to do so, you can use some tools such as Golf Forever or some cables or, or weighted pulley machines from the gym to train and strengthen those areas of your body so that the muscles know what to do. Allison, as everyone listening to this show regularly knows, the worst part of my game is getting out of a greenside bunker. And you have a tip where you change your grip that helps keep the club face from digging and the bounce and gliding through the sand. Share that with us. So this is actually a a long-standing tip. It's nothing innovative. It's tried and true from decades and decades of teaching. If you were to take your lead hand and make it super, super strong. So for a right-handed golfer, your lead hand is your left hand, and it would be turned excessively to the right. And then you take your right hand or your trail hand, and you put it on the golf club, and you make it very weak. 
or that would be turned excessively to the left. You basically have uh, your hands turned inward, so it almost looks like a butterfly. If you put your thumbs together, your fingers would be out looking like the wings of a butterfly. When you place your hands on the sand wedge like that and you start to rotate back and through, you'll notice that it creates almost a locking mechanism on the club where the face doesn't roll and it stays essentially pointed to the sky. The face points to the sky and the balance is activated. And so one of the issues that I see a lot with recreational golfers is they have difficulty maintaining the face being open through the sand so the bounce doesn't slide and glide. And they may start to turn the face down where the club starts to dig too much. So by merely just using this specific grip in your bunker type setup, then you'll notice that the face won't rotate nearly as much and it'll stay more open. And you'll find that that club slides and glides through the sand with ease. Allison, one more tip, and I want to go back a few years to a drill that you taught me that has vastly helped me improve my putting, and that is where you take the cardboard tube from a roll of toilet paper, put that on the end of your putter that helps stabilize your wrist through the putting stroke. Remind us all about that one. Um, Oftentimes, there's a coupling action in players who have difficulty maintaining and regulating the putter. So when I say coupling action, the hands and wrist attached to the club, they the wrist end up being very floppy, if you will, or too loose. So the putter head is hard to manage speed-wise, therefore your putts are very difficult speed-wise. So in order to maintain a little bit more stable connection to the putter, we want to eliminate the, the role of the wrists hinging, flexing, and extending back and forth. So if you were to take the innermost piece of a toilet Uh, toilet paper roll, that cardboard tube, you can put it just on the tail end of your putter and have it lead uh, lean up to your lead forearm. So it almost feels like the lead arm and the putter are practically one unit. And then you can place your right hand on as you make some putting strokes back and forth, making sure that that toilet paper tube doesn't fall off or doesn't move. You'll notice that you engage different types of muscles For the putting stroke, you'll engage more of your rib cage, your upper arms, your lower arms, uh, your abdomen. And so when you blend all those muscles together, the hands and wrists don't need to create a coupling action. They don't need to be floppy anymore. So it's a really nice way to stabilize the wrists and use the appropriate muscles for a solid putting stroke. It'll keep the putting stroke more online and it'll stabilize the face back and forth. Allison, before I let you go. Remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and the lessons that you put out there, whether it's on your website or it's on social media? The easiest way is to head to Instagram. I think a lot of great coaches are over on Instagram. So if you look up Allison Kurt Golf, I'll tend to put up some tips such as the ones that Chris mentioned or any any news or updates about things that are happening within my business world. And then, of course, if you're in Los Angeles, California, and you want to stop by and work together, visit allisonkurtgolf.com. And there's an online booking assistant and online schedule for you to pick a day and time that works best for you. So feel free to pop over to Instagram or to my personal website. Allison, you're fantastic, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of this show. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you again a lot sooner this next time. Absolutely. It's been way too long. Thank you so much for the ask. And it was great to chat with you again. Take care, Allison. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Bye-bye. See ya.
That is the great Allison Kurt. G-U-R-D-T is the spelling of her last name. And uh, she's just one of the great follows. And uh, as you heard, the the uh, credentials that she brings along with her are second to none. She's just absolutely an outstanding both swing coach and mental coach. Lucky to have her as part of the show. Go check her out and give her a follow on Instagram, Allison Kurt Golf, and AllisonKurtGolf.com is the website. And man, if you're out in LA and you're not calling her and getting on her, her lesson plan, yeah, you're missing out on something special, my friends. So go check her out and hopefully we get her back on the show again real soon. Okay, coming up next is going to be another one of the great instructors in our game, another top 50 LPGA instructors, and one of my favorite people on the planet, and that is Cindy Miller. Before we get to Cindy, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too, so spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scone.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scone.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Okay, now back and next on the tee and making her 10th appearance with me on the show is one of the all-time great instructors in our game and one of my favorite people anywhere on the planet, and that is Cindy Miller. Cindy is out there doing great things to help bring more people into our game and then to play better and to make it a game for life. She is from Silver Creek, New York, which is about 45 miles southwest of Buffalo. She played her college golf as a walk-on, mind you, at the University of Miami, There she became an All-American her senior year. She served as team captain and helped Miami win back-to-back NCAA National Championships in 1977 and 78. She won the New York State Amateur Championship in 1978 as well and qualified for the LPGA Tour in 79. She played out on the LPGA Tour for a few years. She competed in five U.S. Opens. She's a Class A LPGA professional. She was named the LPGA Teacher of the Year in 2010, and Golf Digest named her as one of the top 50 women teachers in America. Golf Tips Magazine named her one of their top 25 instructors. In 2011, Cindy was inducted into the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame, and on top of all of that, she's a fantastic speaker, and like I say, one of my favorite people on the planet, and I couldn't be more excited to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Cindy, how are you, my friend? 
Hi, honey. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I feel terrible following her. Why? There's well, this is like uh, yin and yang here. That's brains, and I'm fun. (laughs) (laughs) You have you you take a second seat to nobody. Let me let me put that out there. Uh, Make that straight. Well, there's there's totally two different people. And I loved Allison, but boy, oh boy, she's smarter than me. Um, anyway. So you're doing God good. Catch she's, us up. What's been going on? Good. I haven't talked to you since last year. Oh, my God. I'm teaching like a lunatic seven days a week, believe it or not, in, in Buffalo, the golf capital of the world, right? Um, yeah. I, and I've actually been playing. I, I played in a major championship a month ago, but I need to give it up. I'm you too do? old. No. Oh stop. my God. I, oh my God. I, I played in the senior LPGA championship and I got out driven by like 75 yards. I played with this girl, Patrice Lamone. Yeah, I can't say her name, but oh my God. She hits it like a man. She, and she's still playing like on the Epson tour, which is the before the LPGA tour. And Alan, you know what Alan says? He goes, this is like being in hospice with your best friend, waiting for them <laughs> to die. <laughs> That's awful. I said, thank you so much. He goes, it's time to surrender. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah, I said, okay, thanks, buddy. I love you. <laughs> so then I played in the <laughs> super senior division. Well, we had to play 36 holes in one day. And so she comes up to me after we played. She gave me a big hug. She goes, I have to take a picture with you. I'm so proud of you for not quitting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there you go. Um, so then I broke 80. And then I tournament made the cut. And I'm like, all right, I'm out. Drop the mic. Let's go back and teach <laughs> 4,000 lessons a year. <laughs> anyway, so I'm doing good. Everybody's good. Wow. Yep, that's yep. good news. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. So, well, Cindy, I, I got to get on all the stuff. Hey, thank you very much. That means a lot to me. You're like a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> you're like a rock star. I'm like something. I don't, I don't know if that's what I am, but I'm like something. Um, I know you were just out there at Kingsmill Resort for a pro am, and Kingsmill is a beautiful place up there in Williamsburg, Virginia. Got a couple of great golf courses on the property. One designed by. Pete Dye, another by Arnold Palmer. What was it like for you being there? Well, it was awesome because that's where I did the big break. There um, you go. Which was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So it brought back memories of uh, me trying to learn how not to choke, which is why I did the big break, so I could learn to play on the Legends Tour and prove to myself, you know, that the dream I had when I was 17 to be a player on the tour wasn't a nightmare that would haunt me the rest of my life. So that was great. Uh, played in the Pro-Am, had a great Pro-Am team. Uh, two people from Florida, somebody from, well, she works for a company in Manhattan. In fact, she's the COO of AIG, which is sponsoring AIG Women's British Open. Wow. And she came to play. Yeah. And then a big shot from Buffalo, who used to run the HR department at HSBC. And uh, we had a ball, and that's where I played in the super senior division, which is where I belong, where I could reach the green, and uh, made the cut and made a check. And so we had a ball. It was great. I love Kingsmill. It was beautiful. 
and I didn't have to play 36 holes <laughs> and I didn't have to play with a punk who still plays on tour. <laughs> anyway. Cindy, you recently posted an article about speaking about bad shots, recovering from bad shots. If we've hit a bad one, how can we recover from it and not let it destroy the rest of our round? Well, you know, nobody is good all the time. And and what I tell people is that he or she who misses it best without getting pissed off always wins. And when you play, you kind of got to, um, depending on how good you want to be, you have to know what you're doing with the club. And if you know what you're doing with the club, you can understand where the ball goes. And I had a student the other day who said, um, you're a forensic golf analysis, an analyst, forensic golf analyst. I said, oh my God, that's awesome. And, and he said, well, you, what you're doing is you're backing up a golf shot to figure out what you did. I said, you're absolutely right. So if you care about what you do on the golf course, when you miss it, you should back up what you just did and where the ball went, and then you can fix every shot you hit. Very nice. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. As we talk about committing to shots, that's one of the things I want to get your thoughts on because we often decide what shot we want to hit. We've, we've played it in our mind. We've seen what shot needs to get played, but we don't always commit to that because we're in the back of our mind. We're not really sure. Maybe if I, if I did that, maybe something will go wrong. Those negative thoughts come in and we end up deselling the club and then we chunk it, particularly on chips or pitches. Talk to me about committing to a golf shot because when we don't, we end up making the bad shot that we're we're afraid we just might do. Well, I think you need to practice enough and know your own game. And so many people get the chip yips. And especially when they get older, and it seems to be a disease that men get when they get older because they tend to stick to China and shank it. And so when that happens, if you're afraid, you're going to hit the bad shot. So I believe you need to find a shot that you're not afraid of that works. And if you don't have that shot, you need to come up with some kind of shot. Because the minute you have doubt and fear, I mean, how many times have you stood on a, on a hole that you hate, right? Yeah. There's a couple of holes at French Lick which is where the ups and tours playing this week, right? We just did a podcast this morning and there's, you know, two par threes on that hole that my butt cheeks start to clench the hole before it. Like, Oh, here we go. 16 coming up. Right. I hate this hole. And <laughs> Alan said to me, you know, why don't you hit nine iron off the tee and a wedge on the green? That would be just better than just hitting it left of the world and making the triple. And so, and he's right because I just can't set up on this hole. And so that would be the smartest play, but am I, I'm too stupid and stubborn to do that. And finally, I conquered it the last time we played it on the Legends Tour, right? Um, but 
your subconscious mind will always win. So you need to be certain that you know what you're doing. And if you're not, find a different shot to hit. So I I like that. And not really answering your question, but, you know, I've got this shot. Again, on the big break, I was Little Miss Big Shot till I got there. And we have three kids, and one of them is the middle kid is pretty good, right? He's like a plus four. And he's qualified to play in the U.S. Mid-Am in a few weeks, right? And he was the one that was like, oh, don't do the big break. This is stupid. You're going to look like an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I won't. No, I won't. Until I got there. (laughs) And then I saw 40 cameras and 70 crew members, and all of a sudden, I've got clunk buttons, right? (laughs) And so I came up with this thing called Harry Sweaty Armpits. I do this whenever I get nervous because when you get nervous, your arms get tight. When your arms get tight, you're going to dig the china and you're going to hit it fast. So when I get scared, I pretend I'm sweating like a pig and I haven't shaved my armpits in 30 years (laughs) and I don't want anybody to see my hairy, sweaty armpits. So I take these practice swings and I brush the grass because when I take the sweaty armpits practice swings and brush the grass, I don't hit it fast. So, that's what I do when I get nervous. And so for your listeners, I, I've done this tip on the golf channel. I just did a bunch of tips on for golf pass and they haven't shown this tip yet, but it should be coming between now and December at some point on golf pass. So sign up for the three tips on golf pass. Um, it's called the Harry's Sweaty Armpits. You know, you can hit it clean no matter what. And because the club head will brush the ground and you won't dig the china. So whenever I'm nervous, I just take these half swings and just brush the grass and use my wrist. So that's what I would tell you to do. So let's go back just a little bit, because one of the things I was just talking to Allison about is when you've got that hole in the back of your mind that you always invariably screw up. We all have it, whether it's the one there at French Lick or somewhere else, we, it gets in our head. We we haven't played the hole yet. We might be playing a great round of golf. You might be Jordan Spieth going to the 12th hole at Augusta National with a five-stroke lead. And then here you are at 12, and you thought, oh, here we go. Right? I mean, we're defeated before we even put a peg in the ground. Why does that happen, and how can we get away from it? You talk about hitting a different kind of shot. We got to do something different. How do we get get that out of our head? Well, you have to trick your brain. Now, she's the shrink you know, for sure. And I listened to some of what she was saying, but I didn't listen to this part, but you definitely have to trick your brain. And like Alan said, you know, tee off with a nine iron, do something, stand on the other side of the tee box, hit a different kind of club, you know, do something different. You have to trick your brain. So sometimes I do drills, like I'll tee up, we do this drill with your left heel up. I did a drill on golf pass called straight on purpose. And I will set the club head six inches behind the ball. And we call it the Ben Hogan drill and stand six inches behind the ball and hit the ball that's six inches in front of the club head. And people are like, how can you do that? Well, I'm doing that on purpose because I got to let the club head go past the ball. So I'm tricking my brain. So again, I've named my alter ego, Cynthia, 
she's my evil twin, right? And I, I tell people there's probably another, not another human in the world who's tried to get as good as I've tried to get or have gotten that's been more screwed up than me that's willing to admit that to you and help that wants to help you get better, right? There's other people that are more whacked out, but they probably won't admit that, nor do they give a rip about helping you get better. So I it, share that with people because people think they're the only ones that are screwed up when we're all screwed up. But I want to help them understand that I know how they feel, that I felt the same way. And here's what I found out. Does that make sense? It does. So Cynthia, again, I've been to enough when I was years after I lost my card. Again, my story has always been told you're not good enough. Walk on at Miami, graduated number one player on the team, All-America. Tried to qualify for Stewart, didn't make Qualified on the second attempt. Lost my card three years later. Um, wanted to play on the Legends Tour. They said, you're not good enough. That's why I did the big break to learn how to play under pressure. Qualified, the, you know, did the big break, went and played, finished second on the Legends Tour event, finished second on the Legends Tour career money list. The reason I did the big break was so I could play on the Legends Tour to prove that I really wasn't a schlep, you know? So that being said, uh, it was redemption for me to learn how not to choke, that Cindy really was a good player. So I wanted to defeat my demons. So in that process, I had to have the courage to look in the mirror and say, what was wrong with me? You know, was I afraid to win? Was I afraid to lose? And in that process, one of the shrinks said, okay, who's your evil twin? What's she look like? So I had to picture what's this witch look like? Well, her name is Cynthia. She looks like a little slut that's got red hair with long nails. And, <laughs> you know, she's sitting on the side of a desk, clicking her nails on the side with long, you know, high heels, shoes saying, don't screw this one up, you jerk. You know, <laughs> and so I, I could, you know, look out, be careful. She's always trying to protect me. Well, you can't shut her up. But you can say, Cindy's got this. I appreciate you trying to protect me. You know, look out for the water. Be careful. Well, that's what this idiot's always saying to you. So that's why when you have doubt and fear, you have to say, I've already taken that into consideration. I've got enough club to carry the water. I'm going to make a good swing here. I know exactly what I'm doing. Thank you for trying to protect me, Cynthia. Cindy knows what she's doing. I've got this. And that's the way you handle that. And then you hit the shot. Cindy, I, I want to get your thoughts on Brian Harmon and the way he won the Open Championship this past week. This guy that went out there, kind of the same story as you. People think he doesn't hit it far enough. Just like he said, he was walking past the guy on Saturday after he made a couple of early bogeys, and that, that person said to him, Harmon, you don't have the stones for this. And that kind of snapped him back in, and he's like, you know what, That's I do. That's the best thing that guy could have said. That's the best thing that guy could have said. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about, you know, someone telling you you're not good enough, and then that turns a switch on to prove that guy or Cynthia wrong. So, again, everybody's motivated by one of two things, you know, either um, to stop the pain or something that you want. And unfortunately, you know, I don't need a new car, but don't tell me I 
I can't have a car, right? You tell me what I can't do, watch me. And and, and, and it's funny because my kids, <laughs> it's the same way. I've got three kids that I love, but the middle kid is the player. And he he's so sick. He's so bad. He's just like me. You tell me what I can't do and look out. So that's exactly what Brian's like. And the funny thing is, I got—I should tell you the story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So <laughs> Jamie was at uh, the Players Amateur a million years ago with Brian Harmon. <laughs> and he calls me one night after, I don't know what the, it had to be a practice round. He goes, guess what we did last night? I go, what'd you do? He goes, well, I was out with Brian Harmon. So of course, Alan likes Brian Harmon because he went to Georgia and Alan went to Georgia. He goes, we went alligator hunting. I said, you did what? He goes, we went alligator hunting. I said, you did not. I said, you're from Silver Creek, New York. He goes, well, I didn't go in the water, but I watched them. I go, you did not. I go, did they get an alligator? He goes, of course they did. Do you want me to send you a picture? (laughs) (laughs) He goes, they caught an alligator with their bare hands. No. Yes. No. I know you got to be kidding me. No, and he just sent me the picture the other day. I went, oh my God, they're idiots. No, that's what they do down here. And oh my God. <laughs> yeah. We we almost didn't have an open champion. <laughs> Could have gotten his arm bitten off. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. But again, you know, again, what what does the kid go through, right? Yeah. And what motivates them? And you know, one kid might have cried. You know, you tell me I can't do something. They'd put their tail between their legs and go home. Another kid, you know, they fight harder. It just, what motivates you? No kidding. What motivates me is not being in the water and with then, an alligator. Right? <laughs> anyway. You might Isn't... not want to put that in this. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> We got to tell that story. We got to let that one play. <laughs> Holy cow. The champion golfer of the year might not have been here if he wasn't a little faster wrestling the alligator. Cindy, I got to get your thoughts on where we are with the LPGA Tour because they've been going to some iconic golf courses this year in Baltus Roll and Pebble Beach. How big is that for the growth of the LPGA and showcasing how great their players are? I think it's pretty cool. We got a little memo today from Molly. I think she's doing a great job. The purses are way up. They're playing lots of great places. I think uh, I think it's a great thing. Pretty darn cool. Good things are coming. One more before I let you go, and I'm and I'm going to be selfish about this because I need to get a playing lesson from you. And I saw an article that you wrote and the Buffalo news about how to fix some common problems with our swing. The first thing you talk about is making clean contact. How can we be more consistent with making clean contact? Well, it goes back to Harry's buddy armpit. Um, so it's really, really simple. You know, the machine, the iron Byron. Yes. They're all golf balls companies and golf club companies use to test their equipment. Mm-hmm. Now, Iron Byron doesn't have legs, does it? No. 
sits on a platform and it just swings back and forth. It hinges its wrist and it slaps through, releases the club head, right? Bends its wrist and lets it rip. And Iron Byron made a hole in one at the Phoenix Open in 2019. And Iron Byron is used at the USGA headquarters and I believe change the sod in like a three foot square every six months or so because too many golf balls hit the same place and ruin the ground, which means Iron Byron's pretty consistent. So if Iron Byron doesn't move its center, it means it's hitting the ball clean and square. So if people would stop turning and shifting and moving their center, they could hit it cleaner, more consistently. Now, I'm not saying hit it far, saying hit it cleaner, right? So there's a couple different theories on how to swing a club. Now, I happen to be married to the second purest ball striker Dave Pelz has ever tested. So part of the reason I asked him to marry me was not only because I loved him, but because I would like three lessons for life, right? (laughs) And so... Not stupid. And <laughs> and so if I keep my sternum still and don't try to shift and rotate and I swing the club head back and through and allow it to come back to the bottom of the arc with a square face every time, I'm going to hit a clean, aren't I? Yes, you are. Yeah. So that's what I would do first. And then if I do that and I swing the club head back and through, with my hands, wrists, and arms, and allow my arms to swing, my body's going to follow that. And then my weight's going to shift. My shoulders will turn naturally. My body's going to move and follow that. And my weight's going to shift. And then I'll, you know, my weight will go back to my right foot, and then it'll go through to my left foot. So I don't want to try to rotate. Because it's really a vertical motion because the ball's on the ground, right? It's back and forth and up and down. So if you try to rotate horizontally, now you're putting a horizontal move into a vertical motion. And now you're going to mess up your back. In fact, I even had a spinal surgeon come in for a lesson two days ago. And he said, you're absolutely right. And I said, well, I don't want to come and see you. He goes, no, (laughs) you don't. So, So, so many people think you have to rotate horizontally which now you're putting an extra move in, which is going to not only help you hit it fat, but also hurt your back. So stop moving all over the place. Moral of the story is. Yeah. And swing it back and forth with hairy, sweaty armpits and brush the grass. You'll hit your chips better. You'll hit it cleaner. And then take a bigger swing. You know, when you take a bigger swing, uh, relax your wrists and arms. Let the club head swing. You're going to hit it quick. Cindy, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things Cindy Miller is doing and find out all of your playing lessons and follow you on social media and on your website? I would do Instagram at Cindy Miller Golf and CindyMillerGolf.com. And if you're in Buffalo or you want to come to boot camp, uh, you can find out boot camp information on Instagram if you go to my profile at Cindy Miller Golf, or you can go to cindymillergolf.com and click on Bootcamp. 
Cindy, you're the best, my friend. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night and off the practice tee to come and be a part of the show. You always make the segment so much fun to do. I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Chris. I love you, honey. Right back at you. My best to Jamie and Alan and the rest of your family. Hopefully I get the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. Thanks, honey. Bye-bye. See ya. That is the great Cindy Miller. Folks, if you're anywhere near upstate New York and you want to improve your golf game, you need to go see Cindy Miller because she's going to make learning so much fun, just like she made this segment so much fun. She's going to make learning the game so much fun for you. Make sure you give her a follow both on social media at Cindy Miller Golf. CindyMillerGolf.com is where you can find her online. And like I say, she is absolutely one of my favorite people on this planet. She means a great deal to me. She's been a wonderful guest for many, many years because every single time she comes on this show, it's fun, just like that last segment was. So again, make sure you go see her and give her a follow on social media and online. Okay, coming up next with me is a guy that was out on the PGA Tour and had great success out there and is now one of the great instructors in our game as well, and that is Dave Stockton Jr. Before I get to Dave, Power and Precision, Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to AdeleGolf.com. And folks, do you sway in your off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at Squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special. And book your tea time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Now next on the tee and making his 12th appearance with me is Dave Stockton Jr. Let me remind you about Dave's background. He's from Redlands, California. Like his father and his grandfather, he was an All-American golfer at the University of Southern California. He joined what is now the Corn Ferry Tour back in 1993, and he won twice his rookie season at the Connecticut Open and the Hawkeye Open. He went through Q School in 1994, and he earned his tour card and finished 96th on the PGA Tour money list that year. He played on the PGA Tour from 1993 to 2006, and he had six top 10 finishes out on the Corn Ferry Tour and 13 top 10 finishes on the PGA Tour. Following his days on tour, he spent a couple of years as a commentator for the USA Network. He is now one of the top instructors on the planet, and yesterday was his birthday. And I couldn't be more excited. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dave, happy birthday. How are you, my friend? 
I'm doing great, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on again. I can't believe it's been 12 times, but right? uh, good to be back on. And uh, yeah, just uh, had a good birthday, played golf the last couple of days. It's been nice. Good for you. So now you and I are set to go uh, take up residency in a 55 and older community. Where are we going <laughs> to where are we going to go buy houses? It's funny. I I I was laughing because uh, we've got a family beach house in Carlsbad, San Diego, that my grandparents bought back in the late seventies. That when they passed away, I went to my parents, and it's fifty five and older. And you know, always when I've gone there, I've always had to get approval because I'm not under age, and I'm not under age anymore, so it's all good. <laughs> I feel your pain, my friend. So. Before we get into all the golf stuff, Dave, got to get your thoughts on your USC Trojans. You ready to uh, be a Big Ten guy? Yeah, I think uh, I, I it's going to be interesting to see. I wish we had Caleb Williams one more uh, one more year when we when we started that. He's going to leave after this year, I'm sure. But uh, it, it should be phenomenal with uh, you know such a uh, it's a great conference and uh, the travel. I'm Still trying to figure out how that travel is going to work out, but uh, you know these these uh, colleges. I mean, there's so much uh, change, so many changes going on. It's it's hard to keep up, but uh, I think it's you know it's all about the money, and I think it's a positive move financially for them. We'll see if it works out in the end. Yeah, speaking of changes, I mean, not only are, is USC headed that way. I mean, in UCLA, you got we heard uh, this week, right? Oregon, Washington, Clemson, Florida State. Might be on their yeah. way over to the Big Ten as well, which I think by now has got to be the the Big Twenty. But we're headed. If, it feels like to you know, like two big super conferences, Dave, between the SEC and the Big Ten, and then everybody else. It, yeah, it just, I mean, the game it's, is it's, so different. It is, and and what really kills the Pac-12 is the two biggest media markets are leaving UCLA and USC, and uh, losing them is. Uh, real uh, problem for the Pac-12, and and if they don't figure something out, they're going to be, you know, just one of these lesser, smaller conferences, and and uh, it's looking like that's the case. So, um, you know, with 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 no schools in LA, it's the biggest market on the West Coast, and uh, we'll see what happens. But you know, the schools, it, it's such a it's it's an interesting time for sure. Let's talk a little golf. And um, I was watching the Senior Open Championship, which looked like a lot of fun. What <laughs> what you think about the conditions those guys were playing in on Sunday? I, you know what? I, I felt terrible for them because those are my peers that I played against. And, and uh, you know, I always hope for that in the Open Championship for the young guys. And and they had perfect weather. And then the old guys go out and play. And they had just, just brutal conditions. And. I mean, I was honest in my tweet saying, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't break a hundred in those conditions and, uh, I like it warm. I like being hot, and, you know, I don't like having layers on and everything else. So, uh, Alex check is a, a tough competitor and obviously Padre is as well. And, and the, the two best this week rose to the top. Dave, you and your father are two of the best putting coaches in our game. What did you guys think about what we saw from Brian Harmon at the Open Championship and all the putts he was sinking? You know, it's funny. Um, Brian's always been a – he's a grinder, and he's a bulldog. 
uh, he is, he's just a tough competitor and, um, he's, he is one of those guys you don't want to go up against. And, um, when you have someone that makes putts like him, I mean, he's always been a good putter. And then he, obviously this last week he was off the charts and, um, I told my dad, we were, we were up in, uh, British Columbia, we were, we were salmon and halibut fishing and playing some golf with friends up there the week of the open. And, uh, prior to the tournament starting as Wednesday or Thursday, maybe the first day, um, we were talking about Ryder cup and who's going to get picked and who's going to be on. And I said, I said, playing, you know, in Europe, I said, you want someone that drives the ball straight and makes a lot of putts. It's not about how far you hit it. It's about keeping it in play and just grinding people down. And I said, the perfect guy for that, for the Ryder Cup over there with how he's playing this year and what he's done is Brian Harmon. And then four days later, he wins the tournament. So, you know, he's going to be on the team regardless, but he's one of those guys. Nobody wants to play him in match play because he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He keeps the ball in front of him and, you know, he, He's a perfect example of, okay, he's only won three times on tour. Um, when he's, when someone's on their game like he was, um, and someone has the confidence that someone like his, him has, I mean, he's always been a confident player. That's why he's succeeded at the highest level. It's not about having 20 wins or 30 wins. I mean, he said, you know, he had two wins prior to winning that open championship and, so go and and dominate the field and really demoralize the field. Um, you know, kudos to him. He just he shut it down. He did what top five players in the world do, and when they're on, and you know, he 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 made a statement. And a lot of people, if they didn't know Brian Harmon, everybody on tour knows Brian Harmon, and they know how tough he is as a competitor. A lot of fans didn't know who he was, and. Uh, they know who he is now. Dave, you mentioned the Ryder Cup, and I want to get your perspective on this year's Ryder Cup. Your father was a successful captain in 91 at uh, Kiowa Island. He played on a couple of winning teams in 71 and 77, was an assistant captain in 08 with Azinger on that winning team. So you guys know a thing or two about what it takes to win Ryder Cup. So do you think Zach Johnson, when he's looking at picking his team, do you think he goes all chalk with the top 12? Or do you think there's somebody outside of that who he needs to consider that belongs on that team? I think what he's, he's the smart enough guy, I think. And, and you learn from what past captains have done. And when it was played in France last, you know, uh, one thing, you know, going in playing over there is they're going to bring the fairways in. They're going to bring the rough up. So the bombers oh, go ahead hit it 300 down there. But if you're in six inches of rough, good luck getting it close to the hole. And the Europeans will drive it straight, and the, and the Americans will drive it long and crooked. And that's what happened there with some of the picks that that was that were made. And I think that you're going to see Zach. You know, I think the the one challenge he's going to have, well, the one we thought no brainer at the beginning of the year was Justin Thomas. Justin's he'll say it to, you know, he'll admit it. He has not performed and, you know, you don't know, maybe the light, the switch happens and he plays great in the Ryder cup, but there's, there's something to be said for these young guys that are, that are playing so well and 
playing with confidence and you pair them with some guys that have been there, been in the fire that are the veterans. Um, and I think that's the recipe for success. You don't, it, the old thought was, oh, we got to get these, got to have experience over there in Europe. I don't agree with it. I, I think that you, you you take the hot players, and if they're young, you pair them with guys that are, you know, uh, just studs and can get them around the course. Because the biggest thing, the, the biggest thing playing over there is, is keeping it in the fairway and making the putts. And that's what it's going to come down to in those matches. So, as you mentioned, JT, do you take a chance on JT knowing that he isn't playing well right now and that maybe that that light switch comes on because he and Jordan Spieth have been a really dynamic pair together, but he isn't playing well. That seems like a pretty big risk. I mean, you could you could end up looking like a genius because, again, you talk about a guy that's been in that fire before and a guy that's played well in these kind of events. And well, that's Justin Thomas. He and right. Spieth could could light it up, or you know the the opposite side of that coin is he continues to play poorly and it costs your team. That's a that's a tough one. I I, I actually don't think it's a tough one because there's so many guys that are playing well, and you could pair Jordan Spieth with anybody. You could pair him with Elmer Fudd, and he's going to go out there and win a point. So, uh, you know, it, I I would love to see JT. I think if JT has a top ten this week, he's on the team. Um, if he has a mediocre week, I don't see him getting picked. We got, that's my opinion. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick him because I know we got so many guys that are playing well. Go with the hot hand. You don't go with a guy that just changed putters to try to find lightning in a bottle and figure out what's going on. You go into a Ryder Cup and you're not putting well. Under the most pressure you're going to have, there's more pressure in a Ryder Cup than there is in a regular tour event or a major. It doesn't compare because you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for your teammates and your country. Um, it's a, it's a heightened amount of pressure that most people just don't understand. And I didn't have the career to be able to play in one of those events, but I was my dad's assistant captain in 91 at Kiowa. And I played with the guys the week prior just to get a feel for how they were playing. And I was 22 and just turned pro. Um, and, and then I, you know, I was at Valhalla and Zinger asked me if I would drive Raymond Floyd around for that week and be his driver. So I was in and around the guys that week as well. But, um, you know, it's more about having just a, a, a cohesive unit of guys that are all on the same page. And, and, and what's a bummer is, is JT is one of those guys. I mean, he's, he's an awesome team guy, but, um, if he doesn't have a good week, I just I don't see how you pick him with how many other guys are playing well. And speaking of playing well and, and a veteran, Dustin Johnson was five and zero last time around, and we know the whole live circumstances and all of that. And he's thirty right. seventh right now in the standings. But is he a guy that Zach Johnson should consider? Um, I don't see it. I I, I see Brooks Kepka is a lock and hundred percent. He he's in for sure. Um, I, DJ hasn't played that well. Um, so I, you know, I, he'd be another guy that I just, I wouldn't pick. And, and he was also, he's been a part of a lot of losing teams. So, 
yeah, you bring a lot of experience to the table, but your a lot of your experience is losing. I mean, they won they won two years ago, but two years ago is a long time ago. What about on the European side? I know John Rahm has said he wants Sergio as part of the team, but the DP World Tour has said that those players that went over to play on live, those guys aren't eligible. Do you think that that could change in the next couple of weeks? Maybe Ron puts a little pressure and suddenly uh, the DP World Tour has a change of heart? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, the American players can play in the American team if they went to live, but the Europeans can't. Um, and and I I would think they'd want some veterans like that on the team. I mean, I heard I heard the uh, the guy even saying commentating for the senior British Open uh, this last week saying Padre would be a good pick. Um, you know, the young guys would look up to him. I, I really don't know how their team's going to shake out. Um, and it is such a big question mark because of the, because of, uh, li- the live component and the guys that went there. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here very soon. Dave, you mentioned core setup a moment ago and how the Europeans might set up that course to neutralize what we're doing. Since the U.S. hasn't won a Ryder Cup on European soil since 1993 at the Belfry, so that's 30 years ago, 15 Ryder Cups ago, what do you think their chances are of breaking that road-losing streak this year? Well, I think the, a lot of the pressure comes down on Zach, and it's the six picks that he has. And if I'm Zach, I'm picking guys that drive the ball straight and putt well and that are playing well at the moment. And those are the guys I wrap my team around. Whether they played in a Ryder Cup or not, the rough is going to be up and it's, the fairways are going to be tight. So it's not a bomber's, it's not going to be a bomber setup. And then you play the Ryder Cup in America and it's wide open, you know, bomb it down there. The fairways are wide for the bombers. The rough's not all that high. Each, each team gets to put the course the way they want it. So, I don't know the golf course that they're playing at coming up here, but I know that the fairways will be, you know, narrow and the rough will be up. Um, cause that's what they do over there. So to bring guys that are driving the ball well, that are, that know how to, you know, work the ball and put it in play and that are good putters, that those are the guys that I'd be wrapping, I'd be picking on my team. Dave, switching gears just slightly and speaking of live. What did you think about when you heard about this proposed merger or whatever they want to call it? Well, just like everybody else, it, it you know caught me off guard as well, and um, I and I don't know the the real final parameters of everything, um, and how things stand, uh, you know. And I'm outside of it now, twenty years removed from from you know, basically 20 years removed from playing professionally. Um, it is going to be interesting to see how, uh, the, the different tours work together going forward. And I don't know that anybody really actually knows. Um, but hopefully it, it doesn't, it's not as, uh, it's not this combative, uh, thing where you're hurting the game of golf instead of helping it. And I don't like all the negative talk that 
that happens on both sides. Um, you know, is there a way to make it work? I guess time will tell. Um, it's a completely different brand of golf. I've watched some of it on TV and, you know, uh, ironically, like when I play with my friends, you know, we go out and play, uh, we'll have music in our cart, you know, and we're wearing shorts and, <laughs> and these are professional events doing that stuff. So, um, it's a different, it's a, it's a totally different perspective and, and setup from what golf has always been known as. Uh, and maybe there's components of that, that there's things that, that needed to evolve and get more that way. Um, and we'll see how things shake out coming up. We're hearing that they're going to try to decide what the way back to the PGA tour is for the live guys. Are they going to get suspended? Are they going to have to pay right. a fine and all that sort of stuff? And my question, Dave, is how can you fine or suspend the live guys if they want to come back to the PGA tour? What are you, what are you finding them or suspending them for? Because the PGA tour did the very same thing that those live guys did. They took the Saudi money. I don't understand right. how you could find or suspend them now. No, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, a lot of, it seems to me a lot of the reaction, it was very reactionary what the tour did um, in playing from behind and not <laughs> getting ahead of this and maybe not, un, maybe underestimating the uh the live golf um i i you know i really don't know but i i don't know how you can I, i'm sure there are some live guys that are relieved and looking forward to having access to playing on the pga tour again and then there's players um i would say the guys that are you know older in their 40s uh and 50s that they don't they don't care um, about playing on the PGA Tour anymore or what it does to their legacy or whatever it is. They don't care. I think some of the younger guys uh, would l love the opportunity to play. I'm, I'm guessing they'd love to play on the PGA Tour going forward and not just be strictly live. But um, I think it'll depend if if, if somehow they've, they've got to pay you know, millions of dollars to come back. I don't see anybody doing that. And I don't see how that benefits the PGA tour as well. So I, you know, it's, it's just a, it's like a, you know, you're fishing and you just get a giant knot in your line and you're trying to get that bird's nest out of the line. That's what this whole thing feels like to me. It's just like, okay, it's going to take some time to get this settled, and get it worked out. <laughs> Hopefully everybody's happy in the end. Because we were all sort of caught off guard and this was sort of a 180 from what we all expected. I mean, Jay Monahan out there talking about how he stands with the 9-11 families and you know, we're talking about dirty money and uh, all the blood money and all that sort of stuff. Right. And then to have this thing come around, the, the guy that I'm worried about is how does Jay Monahan survive this? I mean, he went behind the backs of the players, did exactly what he told the players not to do didn't involve them in the decision. I, I just, I don't know how you trust that guy going forward. I'm well, sort of wondering, does he survive this? Um, I don't see how he does. And I like Jay. I, I like Jay a lot as a person, know him. And, uh, but I, 
I think that there have been some bad moves and and I if I was playing on the PGA Tour, I was back in my twenties and thirties when I played out there. Um and I was on the player advisory council, I was on the board, um, I would absolutely have a hard time. I I don't know how I could trust my commissioner for everything that was said for a year plus and then all of a sudden a complete 180 make that make sense and i you know again i'm i'm on the outside looking in now and and a spectator on it but i just don't know how he's he's still involved um going forward because it was there were so many bad moves and and just i think they underestimated the situation and and uh, uh it's I, I don't, and I, and I like him, like I said, I like him a lot, but, uh, man, I, it just, it, it's, it was, a just a giant mess. The first thing Jay did when he came back to the job was put a player's memo out, letting them know that the tour was not going to adopt the model local rule regarding rolling the golf ball back. They seem to acknowledge that there is a problem with distance, but rolling the golf ball back isn't what they see as the solution. How do you think this plays out from here, particularly with the USGA and the RNA? Well, I I think if one thing, I mean, to me, if you roll the ball back, all you're doing is hurting the shorter hitters. You're not hurting the longer hitters. Not going to bother them. They lose, they lose ten yards. Not going to bother them. Um, and and I look at scores that are shot at Harbor Town every year. And some of the, you know, the tighter, tougher golf courses that aren't long, but they're tree line. If you're in the wrong side of the fairway, you're not, you're having, you're having to really shape a shot to get it close. Um, so, and that golf course is 7,000 yards or just over. And that is, that's like nothing to these tour guys that bomb it, but you better, you better put it in play. Um, I don't agree that you got to, you know, build these golf courses at 8,000 yards. Um, you just don't have to do that, but you do, you bring in the, you bring in the rough, uh, you plant some trees, uh, create, create issues for players. If you're not hitting it straight, um, I, you could dial, you could dial the, you know, the, uh, maybe the equipment or, uh, you know, the driver faces, every driver's, you know, they're going farther and farther. And, um, I don't know. I mean, the golf ball, to me, if you were going to do something, you would have done it 20 years ago. And I think I think Nicholas was even talking about that years ago, dialing things back. I could be wrong, but I thought he was saying, you know, yeah, golf ball. Was. Yeah, so, I mean, but they didn't listen to him then. I mean, the USGA didn't listen to him then. The USGA, I mean, they've made a lot of mistakes over the years. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan of the, the belly putter or the ink, you know, the, the long putter, the broomstick, whatever you want to call it. Now you can't anchor it. It's like, well, it should never have been allowed in the first place. But all I could think is, and my dad and I joke, you know, all we could think is that some of these USGA people in the, making these decisions are bad putters and it helped them with their putting. So they made it legal. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's my take on it. And, um, you know, I, I think that the longest club in your bag should be the driver and, uh, you know, and, and 
because it it's hard to police the whole anchoring thing and um you know that's a, that's a whole nother thing but uh, uh i i i don't agree with i i mean i could see rory saying yeah roll the ball back go ahead he's still gonna hit it farther than everybody else mm-hmm. but he's gonna be hitting eight eight irons and nine irons in and the guys that are rolled back further are hitting five and six so how's that helping them <laughs> it, it really it really doesn't matter it, it's more about you know making these golf courses, you know, bringing the rough, whatever. You don't need to make them longer. That's proven with some of the shorter courses on tour that guys have have trouble, you know, because you got to keep it in play. You're not going to win hitting it in the rough in every hole. Dave, I want to ask you about something I've started to see with guys and their putting strokes, particularly with Rory, but some of the other guys as well. And what I'm seeing is, they seem to be striking the ball on an upswing or and their follow through. And I don't know if I'm imagining that or not, but it seems like they are getting that ball on the bottom of the putter face and getting the top the middle to the top part of the golf ball. And I'm guessing that is to try to get it rolling sooner instead of skidding for the first foot or two. Am I imagining that? Is that what's happening out there? A hundred percent. I mean and I mean <laughs> we we see it all the time. We've seen it with Rory. With um, we see it with other players too, where they're catching the ball. It's almost like they're catching it. The putter's a half an inch to an inch off the ground, and they're catching the ball low in the face, and wondering why it's not staying on their line or not having good pace. And I mean, I was always taught to keep the putter as low as possible throughout the entire stroke and not come up. But what gets the ball rolling true is having just a you know half a degree aloft or so at impact it gets the ball out of its impact and gets it rolling it's not about having it coming up on the stroke that's the last thing i would ever tell anybody i'm not telling them to hit down on it but i'm telling them to keep the putter level throughout through the ball so you're catching it right in the sweet spot of the of the putter now if you catch it in the sweet spot you're getting a truer roll it's going to stay on your line better and it's also going to have better speed Dave, one more before I let you go. And you know, we love to plug the great things that your father achieved during his playing career. We've been campaigning for years now to get him in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Guys like Fred Couples are in, Davis Love the Third is in, and your father have as many majors as both of those guys do combined, plus his Ryder Cup record. And he's been a great ambassador for the game of golf for decades. Are you hearing yep. any whispers? Are we getting any closer to getting your father into the World Golf Hall of Fame? You know, I don't know. I mean, he, I, he has a record that other players have records just like his and they're in. Um, and they came from different eras that, you know, they were the cooler people knew him more. And, you know, my dad was sixties and seventies and, and then the Ryder cup in the nineties, uh, 91. And, um, I, I, I'm hopeful that at some point he gets in. I, it was really, to me, it was just so sad that, and I couldn't understand why he didn't get in sooner. And Tom Weisskopf deserved to be in 10 to 15 years ago. And he passes away and they, they're inducting him into the Hall of Fame. It's like a lot of good that does him now. He's gone. And he should have been in 10 or 15 years earlier. And, you know, this past time when they gave the names of the people and I saw that my dad wasn't on the list. And obviously, I'd love to see my dad on the list. I'm, I'm in his corner and thinking that he did, he's done a lot for the game with his career and how he played. And, 
Um, and I said, Hey dad, you're not on. You didn't get picked again. And, and, you know, he's like, well, he said, uh, <laughs> he's always makes a joke out of it. He said, well, you know, maybe in two years, if, if hopefully I'm still here, but if not, he says, you'll just have to give the speech for me when I get in. And, you know, he, he laughed as he said it, and it, it you know, it, it pissed me off. Cause I, I, I think he deserves to be in. He's got a lot of people fighting for him to get in, but in the end, you got to be voted. And um, hopefully it happens. He's 81 now. Um, my mom and dad are coming up to be with us here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho for the next three weeks. They get here on Thursday, and I'm going to play a ton of golf with my dad. He, shoot, he plays more golf than I do. He, he plays twice a week, and he's uh, 81, and he's a three handicapper. So wow. uh, it's uh, it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong, and uh, it's a lot of funny. He jokes that uh, he can. It's not good when you can hear it land. That's what he says now. But uh, <laughs> but he still makes every putt he looks at, and uh, and he can chip it as good as anybody I've ever seen too. So that that's never left, and that's why he's still shoots under par or just over par and beats his age every time. Dave, what's coming up next for you? What are you working on? Well, I am, uh, I'm, I'm doing, uh, teaching up here in Coeur d'Alene at CDA National Reserve. And, uh, we have a home here. And, uh, so we live here from May through October. And I sell real estate out of here. I have my Idaho license as well. And, um, and then, uh, we're in Scottsdale, Arizona from November through April. And I'm with Sotheby's down there selling real estate and, uh, still teaching, uh, you know, at, at Stone Eagle in Palm Desert, California. And uh, ironically, I couldn't find a place to teach in Scottsdale. They already had teachers. And I couldn't get an in. So I do the four hour drive a few days a month and load up lessons at Stone Eagle. But uh, uh, I am uh, gearing up for uh, going to New York in October to play in a fun event at Friars Head and Laurel links with some buddies and my daughter, our daughter lives in New York. So we're going to go visit her and, and, uh, just playing, playing a little bit and having fun and enjoying family. That's what's on the docket. Well, I can't imagine how there's not room anywhere for Dave Stockton Jr. To, to be teaching. That's, that blows my mind. <laughs> well, it, it was, I called like 10 or 12 clubs and, and, uh, I got turned down by all of them. So, uh, I uh, I focus on real estate there, and then Eagle, my club, I'm still a member at Palm Desert. It's a four hour drive. I go see family and friends, and and uh, it's not a big deal because real estate, I can make my own schedule and uh, go back and go to my favorite Mexican restaurant in in Palm Desert. It's okay. It's all good. Dave, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with you and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Uh, on Instagram, David B Stockton underscore and, uh, on Twitter, DSJR one, uh, are my two handles. And, uh, I'm at CDA national reserve up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, uh, beautiful Weisskopf, a uh, fabulous Weisskopf golf course that, uh, um, just, uh, blessed to be at and, and, uh, right here on Lake Coeur d'Alene. Um, in fact, my dad last year, first time they came up. He, uh, we were on the golf course playing. I said, Dad, what do you think of the golf course? And he said, it's one of the finest golf courses I've ever played. He said, when wow. we get done, I'm going to, when we get done, I'm going to call Tom. I got to just congratulate him on a beautiful design. And, 
and it was right when Tom passed away. So he didn't get to talk to him and tell him, but it's, it's a special place. And, uh, I know my mom and dad are looking forward to getting up here, uh, getting up here on Thursday. I will one, one more little ad, which is funnier. I think it's funny. They don't really like Californians up here in Idaho. And <laughs> I've got, I've got my Arizona plates on my car, so they're okay with that. And, uh, my dad and mom drove up last year and they got the California plates, but I said to my dad, I said, Dad, it's a good thing you got that Ducks Unlimited sticker on your back window because at least, you know, they're, they're okay. They, they don't mind hunters up here. That'll offset that California plate. He's laughing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dave, it's always a privilege to get to spend time with you. I can't thank you enough for coming back and, and being a part of the show for a 12th time tonight. I'm already looking forward to number 13. You're one of my favorite people in the game. And, uh, I've been uh, blessed to have you on the show 12 times. I've been blessed to spend some time with you at Augusta National, which was a huge thrill. And uh, I hope we get the opportunity to do it again sometime soon. Oh, Chris, I love your show and I appreciate you having me on. appreciate everything you do and look forward to number 13. That's my lucky number. Ah, there you go. Yep. Dave, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Like I said, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. You too. All the best. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Bye. That is the great Dave Stockton Jr. Folks, it just don't come better than that guy. Just a, a wonderful human being, a, a great player in his own right. And then one of the top instructors in our game for anything you want to know from putting to the full swing. This guy is just as good as they get. And uh, like I said, I've been uh, really privileged to spend some time with Dave. One of the great memories and one of the great things I have in the game of golf was spending some time with Dave. Over at Augusta National was one of the best days of my life, uh, getting to to pick his brain and, and see the golf course and the game of golf through his eyes a little bit. And like I say, having him on the show 12 times now, uh, it, that just makes it better and better every time we get that privilege of doing that. So uh, 13 is his lucky number. I hope to get that 13th opportunity with him real soon. Make sure you're giving him a follow again at David B. Stockton underscore on Instagram at DSJR1. On Twitter, I follow him all the time over on both sites, and uh, he's a fantastic follow. Great pictures, great stories, and great insights. Uh, His birthday was yesterday. We are both now 55 or older, and maybe we'll end up in the same subdivision. Wouldn't that be a hoot? Love, Love Dave. Look forward to catching up with him again soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Reese Jones, Allison Kurtz, Cindy Miller, and Dave Stockton Jr. for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, will be back, as will former PGA Tour pro Richard Zokel. Looking forward to catching up with Richard. Michael Verska, product development expert, is going to make a very long overdue return to the show. And then we're going to round it out with a return visit from hockey analyst and Mura Golf Brand Ambassador Darren Pang. Looking forward to having Panger back on the show as well. So we're going to have a fun time next week. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. 
Folks, you can find the show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audio Boom, Player.fm, Good Pods. And my thanks to those folks for making this show one of their recommended podcasts. So download their free app and stream your favorite podcast on your favorite device. Plus, I am so excited to say that we are now a part of TribLive.com up in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. I couldn't be more excited to be a part of my hometown news media site. If you're looking for digital content, go out to TribLive.com, click on sports and then podcast, and you're going to find next on the T a part of that wonderful site. My thanks to Jennifer Botetto and the wonderful team up there for bringing us home and being a part of their great site. So thank you very much. And uh, so excited to be a part of Pittsburgh sports folks. But most of all, I'm thankful for all of you. You guys are the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much until next week. Hit them straight, my friends.